Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 14 Of Scots, Steam and Gold The Tale of Joseph Major Two horses pounded through the rural dark, splashing the recently unfawed April mud up their long legs and sweating flanks. Spinnies, copses and clumped forests flashed by in an indistinct blur. The riders, all four of them, were seen by no one to their great relief. A few faint lamplights in the far distance indicated that their destination was at hand. The small sheltered candles flickered illumination onto solid stone walls and a large gateway leading to a courtyard within. This was no simple peasant hut, no comfortable merchant domicile, no grandiose aristocratic palace, but the moderately expansive home of the Scottish engineer, Joseph Major. Had the riders been at all curious, they might have had to fumble around the yard, peeking into windows and doors that led to servants' quarters, stables and storerooms. They would almost certainly have come across Major's workshop, which occupied a full quarter of the building. Here they would have been confronted by the endless miscellany of metal machinery that the Caledonian mechanic needed for his main task, the reason the Russian government had given him this house, to build steam engines. But the horsemen had no need to go snooping around. They knew exactly what they were doing and where they were going, thanks to a scouting mission one of their brothers had done a few days prior. Bringing their steeds to a stop, not too far from the house, Nestor Pekulin, Vasily Shukov, Astafy Druzhinin, and Andrei Rikov alighted, keeping their sound to an absolute minimum. Silence was a necessity for the dark deeds ahead, making the free pistols they carried weapons of last resort. They were probably not too nervous, since they already had considerable criminal experience. Pikulin was wanted for strangling his wife and the murder of a mother and her son. Rikov was involved in the exact same incident. Their first job tonight was to clear the way to the house. In a canvas tent by the home was the 70-year-old peasant guard, Ivan Stienin. Rikov crept up and smashed the septuagenarian sentry over the head with a crowbar, killing him almost instantly. Leaving Zhukov to guard the corpse, the remaining three cracked open a window and entered the dining room. Here they found the cooling remnants of a feast, as yet not cleared away by the sleeping servants. The date was Saturday the 19th of April, 1831. The next day would be Easter, so Major had been entertaining some guests, including a semi-literate British merchant woman and a Moscow artist and sculptor called Ivan Kessel. Some abandoned casks of wine and port had not been emptied, 
so the intruders happily treated themselves. This impromptu party was interrupted by a heavily accented voice from the nearby corridor. Who's there? It was Major. Obviously the trespassers had not been quiet enough. They positioned themselves, ready and waiting. The Scot opened the door and saw the skulking snoopers. He had time enough to ask the men what they wanted before Rikov slashed down with his bloody crowbar, striking three deadly blows across the head. Taking no time to survey the damage they had done, they got to work, rifling and rummaging through Major's domestic quarters until they found what they had come for, secreted away in the bedroom. Some twenty pounds of gold. Job complete, they rushed back to their mounts and set out on the 14-kilometre ride back to Yekaterinburg, the main Russian city on the Siberian side of the Ural Mountains. To properly follow the path that led Major to his grisly demise in the Urals, we must understand two stories, both of which cannot be told without the other. The bringing of foreign expertise and technology to Russia, and the 18th century industrial colonisation of that country. We should properly begin at the end of the 16th century. The Cossack banded Yermak had, in 1582, shattered the last Khan of Siberia, in doing so opening up a vast tract of territory, spreading from the Ural Mountains all the way to the Pacific Ocean and the borders of China. Russian settlement in the Urals had quickly followed, pursuing the invaluable resources of salt and furs. The colonizers created small fortress towns in Vakulture, for instance, a small village some five hours' drive north from Yekaterinburg. One can still visit the distinctive fort, a miniature Moscow Kremlin, that guarded the main northern passage across the mountains from 1598 onwards. But as Russians spread around the area and drove before them the various native tribes that called this land home, they started to find evidence of far more than salt and pelts. Traces of copper, iron, gold and precious stones were presumably but fragments of the vast treasures that the earth concealed. Meanwhile, Russia was entering into decades of sustained combat with its westernmost foes, the Kingdom of Sweden and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Tsar Alexei, who ruled from 1649 to 1676, had quickly realised that victory against such enemies required less the roving horse archers so key in steppe warfare, and rather mass rifle-bearing infantry battalions backed by legions of fire-belching cannon. The effort to modernise the Russian armed forces led to the hiring of mercenaries from across Europe, including the British Isles. One such man, the Aberdeen-born Patrick Gordon, who had fled Scotland for the continent's east amidst the British civil wars, became a friend and tutor to Alexei's young son, the future Peter the Great. Peter took his father's fort and action to their next logical step, 
victory would require not only a modernised army, but a modernised country, populated by rational and rationally organised subjects, and bolstered by the rational exploitation of Russia's immense natural resources. Iron extraction and production, absolutely key in making the artillery upon which the Tsar's armies depended, was a particular problem. Arms manufacture was mostly done in the medieval town of Tula, where it was organised on the basis of small workshops, incapable of rapid mass production. Furthermore, Russia was largely dependent on foreign powers for its iron, not least Sweden. The 21-year war that Peter waged with this northern power definitively highlighted Russia's weaknesses in this area. Even during the conflict, Peter reorganised the Tula production line into large-scale factories, a process implemented by the Demidov family. The riches, lands and laudations that the grateful Tsar heaped upon them were so vast that they remained one of Russia's most prominent families until the October Revolution of 1917. But Peter also sought to found new weapon centres, built from scratch and using locally sourced raw materials. Some of these he erected in the far north, in the land of Karelia, bordering Finland. Others he decided to set up in the distant Urals from 1702. The hub of this production was to be a new city, the city of Yekaterinburg. From its very beginnings in 1723, Yekaterinburg heavily featured the presence of foreign industrial experts, some of whom were captured Swedish officers. Of the city's two founders, one was Georg Wilhelm de Henin, a Germano-Dutch artillery officer. Genin brought with him an English ironworker, known to us only by the Russian version of his name, Lavrenti Bajarov. Meant to be the epitome of a modern European city, Yekaterinburg was built in strict accordance with the straight lines and right angles of a grid. At the heart of a new urban conglomerate was the river Isiet, which was dammed into a lake by the vulgar peasant engineer Leontis Lorbin. The water fed not only the town's residents, but also the many new factories and smithies that lined the embankments. This model, a rigidly geometrical industrial centre, founded by a combination of Russian and Western expertise and supplied by dammed and dug out water sources, was used for all the smaller factory settlements that sprung up across the Urals in the following decades. And all these manufactories bore much fruit. 100% of the empire's copper came from the Urals by the century's end. Annual iron production rose from around 5,000 tonnes in the 1720s to more than 100,000 tonnes in 1800, surpassing Great Britain's output by 1750 and that of Sweden by 1770. Huge quantities of this material were sent abroad, especially to the United Kingdom 
which imported some 36,500 tonnes of Russian iron in 1793 alone. It is no exaggeration to say that Britain's Industrial Revolution was built on the iron of the Urals, a region lit with the fires of a thousand blast furnaces. Fundamental to this colossal transformation were not just the foreign experts or the Russian officials, but the tens of thousands of factory serfs, unfree labour forced to toil in the difficult and deadly conditions of 18th century mines and metalworks for little to no recompense. But a few of these, the talented or simply the lucky ones, could learn at the feet of the technical specialists or be sent to the mining college in Yekaterinburg for further education. Homegrown tinkerers soon began to come up with a range of inventions, such as the serf Yegor Kuznetsov, who devised water pumps, lifts and an astronomical clock. Most importantly, the soldier's son Ivan Pozunov, after receiving an engineering education in Yekaterinburg, went to work in the mines of the Altai, where, in 1764, he began to fiddle with the early 18th century designs of one Thomas Newcomen, whose so-called atmospheric engine used steam power to pump water from mines. Polzunov died three days before his machine was finished, and although it ran for several months, it was treated only as a toy. He might then have been cheered to know that far away in distant Scotland, James Watt was doing very much the same thing and was soon to patent a machine that would transform the world. The potential of Watt's inventions were quickly realised, and not just in Britain. A Russian effort to poach Watt failed in 1773. Then, in 1777, the Russian authorities ordered a new common steam pump from Matthew Bolton's factory. They intended to deploy it in the naval dry docks of Kronstadt, close to St. Petersburg. An absolute monster of a machine, the biggest of its kind in the world. Its three boilers were more than five metres tall and three metres in diameter. But perhaps more fundamental were the negotiations undertaken to bring the mechanical beast to Russia. Admiral Samuel Grieg, a Scottish mercenary who had won celebrated naval victories as commander of the Russian fleet, corresponded with one Charles Gascoigne, a director at Bolton's factory. This contact was to be very helpful a decade later. By this point, in the 1780s, Watt had patented his famous compound steam engine. Immediately aware of the machine's strategic significance, the British government effectively invented the crime of industrial espionage to ensure its design did not leak to foreign competitors. But in an age where borders were practically non-existent and the poaching of talent extremely common, it was very much in vain as Catherine the Great's government quickly demonstrated. In 1786, 
Admiral Grieg once again got in touch with Charles Gascoigne and made him an offer he could not refuse. 15,000 rubles a year to bring steam power to the factories of the Russian Empire. To put this vast salary into perspective, a worker at one of Gascoigne's future workshops could expect 20 to 25 rubles a year, and this was considered a beneficial wage. Although it is uncertain whether Gascoigne himself knew how Watt's engine worked, he brought with him soon after other mechanics who most certainly did, such as the Englishman George Sheriff and our current hero Joseph Major, to whose tale we now return. About Major's life on the British Isles, we know little, only that he most probably came from Scotland and was working in Bolton's Birmingham factories in the 1780s. However, he seems to have been a restless and romantic sort, ever seeking new horizons. He left England first for Austria and then for the semi-independent duchy of Courland, today the territories of southern Latvia. There he published a book in German, full of steam engine designs. Evidently he was going to attempt to put the duchy's tiny capital of Mittau, today Algarve, firmly onto Europe's technological map. But then geopolitics intervened. Part of Poland was gobbled up by the ever-expanding Russian Empire, and Courland was a victim in the process, losing its independence and becoming nothing more than a Russian province in 1792. Fortunately for Major, he quickly received an invitation from Gascoigne to come and work in his new plant in Karelia, on Russia's border with Finland. There, Gascoigne had transformed the run-down Alexandrovsky cannon factory into a model plant like those in England's industrial heartlands, insisting on better standards of living for the workers. Gascoigne ensured not only regular pay for all staff at the factory, but also built stone barracks which gave each individual worker their own room. A far cry from the wooden shacks often set up by Russian factory owners. The transition to Scottish management was not seamless though. Astonished that Russian workers got between 50 and 60 days off a year to celebrate the Orthodox Church's innumerable feast days, Gascoigne reduced vacations to 12 days a year. But his successes spoke for themselves. The rebuilt foundry had immediately reversed flagging cannon construction. And, most fundamentally, it had produced one of Watt's compound steam engines in 1791, Russia's first. For a while, Major held tightly on to Gascoigne's coattails. For what coattails they were. The sociable older Scot was loved at the imperial court, regarded by first Catherine the Great and then her son, Paul I, as the go-to troubleshooter for industrial matters. Indeed, so popular was he with Paul that the emperor personally extracted Gascoigne from a sticky financial situation. Unmarried for quite some decades, at the age of 60, the engineer decided to marry Jessie Guthrie, the beautiful, intelligent, 
16-year-old daughter of the British ambassador's Scottish doctor. Encouraged by her husband, the young woman managed to burn through more than 40,000 rubles in the space of six months. Suddenly close to penury, Gascoigne had to ask his imperial patron for financial aid. Paul responded by giving him a large estate in a central province, one that came with roughly 2,000 unfree peasants attached. One of the projects that had won Gascoigne such favour was the decision to run the St. Petersburg coin mints with steam power. Gascoigne was given control of the initiative. After deconstructing his northern steam engine and sending it to the imperial capital, he handed the matter over to Major. As a consequence, all gold 5 ruble coins printed in St. Petersburg in the year 1800 bear Major's Russian initials. O.M. or Osip Major. This work brought glory to Major, who was made a member of the Imperial Academy of Sciences in 1801, thus establishing him as a leading luminary of the industrial arts in his own right. He was thus quickly headhunted by the Russo-German business magnate Andrei Nauf, who owned the vastly valuable Zlatoust armaments complex in the Urals. In 1803, Major thus set out to the distant gates of Siberia and rapidly proved his worth. The next year, he built the first properly functioning steam engine to be seen in Siberia since Polzunov's model some four decades prior. Although one might censure Major for being a thin, watered-down shadow of true innovators like James Watt. His production in the Urals belies such an accusation. For instance, once producing steam engines in the Urals, Major came across difficulties that he had probably already seen in northern Russia. The extreme winter colds had severe adverse effects on Watt's design. At the very least, much, much more fuel was required. At the very worst, the machines could simply break down. And this was a terrible handicap in a country that still lacked either qualified native steam mechanics or a ready supply of suitable replacement parts. Confronting the issue, Major designed a solution which involved running small heated steam pipes around the most vulnerable parts of the mechanism. In 1808, an operating model of this design was shown off to Emperor Alexander I, who declared himself most satisfied. Later, in the early 1820s, Major built a small steamboat, which he presented to Alexander when the Tsar visited the Urals in 1824. Precious little wonder, then, that the government was grateful, gifting Major a substantial estate close to Yekaterinburg for the future construction of steam engines, along with a relatively generous salary of 1,500 rubles a year. The operation was to be staffed by 50 Russian craftsmen, whose wages would be paid by the state. In return, Major turned a small area of his new home 
into a schoolhouse where the literate craftsmen would learn the basics of engineering. Unfortunately, it was Major's very inventiveness that was soon to prove his ultimate downfall. In 1823, noticing gold flecks amidst the sand near one Ural factory, he designed his own gold cleaning machine, which during its test run successfully extracted a pound of the invaluable element. This drew Major into the murky underground world of Russia's illegal gold trade. Accusations began that the gold appearing in Major's workshop did not come from his own estate, but had been taken when mixed with dirt and sand from elsewhere, from other people's property. Matters were not helped when Major's manservant was arrested in Moscow for trying to offload gold secretly. Although cleared by a government commission, it is evident that Major was now painting a target on his own back and dealing with some distinctly dangerous characters. One such individual was the Ekaterinburg merchant Pyotr Marianich. The two men had had some kind of business relationship revolving around gold, but it had broken down, leaving Marianich to stew for a few years in embittered rage. In the spring of 1831, he finally decided to act. So, now we return to that grim Easter Sunday, with the bloodied bodies of Major and the guard Stienin being found by horrified household staff. For the local authorities, murder and theft were bad enough, but the killing of a celebrity foreign specialist in his own home was far, far worse in their regard. The governor wrote Emperor Nicholas I about the carnage. The Tsar ordered that every effort be spent to find the criminals responsible. Thankfully, the stupidity and greed of the four assassins, Pikulin, Zhukov, Druzhinin and Rykov, led to swift capture. Marianich had told them that upon recovery of Major's gold, they would get 50% and he would get 50%, but all of the gold would be sent for safe, undercover sale in the city of Kazan, 850 kilometers to the west. However, on the very morning after the murder, the four decided to keep all of the money and that they would sell it in Yekaterinburg itself. In this small town of some 15,000 people, the secret was soon out that these four indigents had mysteriously come into possession of a considerable quantity of gold. On the 22nd of June 1831, Pikulin was arrested and confessed, betraying all of his co-conspirators. With the stolen gold recovered, imperial justice, swift and harsh, was meted out. The gang of four, Marianich and his trading associate in Kazan were flogged, branded and sentenced to a life of hard labour in deepest Siberia. But Major's body was not left to sleep soundly in the knowledge that he had been avenged. Some six months later, his grave was dug up and robbed, with the thieves evidently seeking more of the gold 
for which the Scot had become infamous. The final blow came from the Imperial State, although Major's oldest son, Joseph Jr., was able to keep the steam engine factory running for two years more. In 1833, the government withdrew the Russian labour it paid for, thus bringing an end to the enterprise. It is a shame that gold so dominates both the last days and memory of Joseph Major. For with its glow, it obscures his very real contribution to industry in the Urals. Over the 26 years he lived in this Russian region, he built no fewer than 18 steam engines for both private and state concerns. Not a bad individual contribution to the couple of hundred or so such devices that existed in the empire during the early 19th century. As Zacharias Walker wrote to Matthew Bolton in 1805, after long roving about like a wandering Arab through Austria, Poland, etc., Major has pitched his tent for these two or three years past in Siberia, in which philosophic retreat he has had leisure to contemplate uninterruptedly the profoundest depths of mechanics, and has at last brought forth a new steam engine, which for its simplicity and cheapness in proportion to its power, is to set all that has hitherto been done or thought of at naught. Had Major but lived six years more, he would have seen the machine to which he dedicated his life take its next step in transforming Russia. When, in 1837, the first steam train ran between the royal residence of Tsarskaya Siela and the imperial capital of St. Petersburg. But this... Dear friends, it's a tale for another time.